Thanks, Wes. Anybody here like anybody here like waiting? I'll take by the response as a no. Brant's actually shaking his head. Um, restaurants, grocery store lines, Walmart checkout. I mean, I feel like Walmart only only has one person working the lines. Um, how about traffic? Anybody enjoy traffic? Who you do, Brant? No. Um, sometimes my legs actually ache when I'm sitting. I'm, it's probably a different sermon for a different day about when I'm sitting in traffic. I'm just like, go. Um, raise your hand if you would consider yourself good at waiting. Ray? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm a pretty patient individual. Not making eye contact with my wife. I feel like I'm a pretty patient individual, and you know, much more so before I had kids. Um, but you know, there are a couple things in life where waiting is just not my strong suit, and one of them is restaurants. I I, I don't like waiting in line at restaurants. I mean, I think it's probably the introvert in me that just doesn't like to be huddled in a little you know, entryway foyer with 50 other slackers who forgot to make dinner reservations or didn't call ahead. And, you know, even if people were there and you wanted to conversate, it's always kind of loud. And if my kids are with me, you know, Cracker Barrel is one of those places that if you ever have to wait at Cracker Barrel and you have a six-year-old and a four-year-old with you, done. Because half the store is on the floor and, you know, they want to buy everything in the little waiting. I mean, it's great if you don't have any you know, browsing around, smelling candles. I mean, that's all fun until you got a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and then it, you know, it's going all over the place. Um, the other part that waiting just really, like, I, this one I just more don't understand is airline boarding. I do not understand why they board zone by zone. Like, they call the zones back to back to back to back, and we all sit in this, like, literally, you all, you back all the way up, and I, like, get on. The first thing I do when I get on a plane is I'm like, I just get in the jetway and wonder, like, how far down the line's going to be. Does anybody else do that? So you get in, and you're like, oh, great. You you turn the corner, and boom, you're waiting right here as first class gets their drinks, and, you know, everybody's, I'm like, come on, Jake, how long does it take to order your drink? Let's get this... Let's get this thing moving on. But waiting is a part of life. Would you agree? Whether we like it or not, waiting is a part of life. We wait at the doctor's office. We wait at the airport. You used to wait for cabs. Now you wait for Ubers. You, you know, wait for your coffee to brew. In the first service, they said, I wait for my wife to get ready, but she's in this service, so I won't say that. <laughs> she probably waits on me more than anything. Um, I read something this week that said, you will spend... 3,000 hours in your lifetime waiting at red lights. 3,000 hours. If you do the math, you know, three minutes of light. I mean, if you've gone down Dale maybe lately, you know, three minutes of light, you just, it doesn't take long. And those, if you do it daily, it's ridiculous. We'll spend 43 days waiting on hold. If you just live an average life, 43 days waiting on hold. And if, if that's not hard enough, like, or I shouldn't say hard. If that's not annoying enough, it's not hard. But if that's not annoying enough, there's a lot of times where I feel like, I can't speak for you, where I wait on God. You know, these, these things that we've prayed about, these paths that we believe he's leading us down, 
And so we do it. We kind of take this step of faith. We, we, we move out on faith, and then things don't go the way we thought they should go. You ever been there? I mean, that, that first step of faith is hard enough. Getting up, you know, praying, God, what do you want me to do? Where am I going? You know, what are we going to do? Are we going to move here? Are we going to go here? Are we going to plant here? Are we going to do this? And, you, you know, you work, work, okay, do, 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 Lord, what do you want? What do you want? And all of a sudden you're like, Lord, this is exactly what God wants me to do. And you do it. And then you, it doesn't turn out like you thought it was going to turn out. And you're like, God, I, I thought this is what we were doing. I thought we were going this way together. And you wait. And you feel like you're waiting. I mean, now here's the deal. God's always on time. Your expectations might be off, but God's always on time. He's always doing something. I was reading a biography a while back on Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary to Burma in the 1800s. And when he was a young man, he felt like God was calling him overseas to move halfway around the world and do ministry in Asia. And Asia, you know, if you're from the United States, doing ministry in Burma or India or some of those places, that's tough enough in this day and age. But picture it in the 1800s. I mean, that, no communication lines. You know, once you get on that ship, it said he was in Asia, in Burma. He went home once in 33 years. So he pretty much spent his entire life over there. He would bury his first wife over there, he would get married again. He would bury his second wife. When he was over there, he would have, they would have 13 kids total. He would have 13 kids. And seven of those kids would pass away before they got to adulthood. All right? He would had illness. He was being imprisoned at one time, beaten at one time. And if all of that isn't like hard enough to grasp, there was one thing when I read it that just etched in my mind. And that was, it would be six years before the first Burmese individual professed faith in Christ. Six years. I mean, it kind of puts my restaurant waiting into perspective. Would you agree? Kind of, you know, it kind of wakes you up. Okay, can you imagine following the Lord? I mean, I can't even imagine. They left the day after they got married, him and his wife, and Judson. They left the day after they got married. They sailed for Burma because they felt like this is what God was calling them to do. They actually had a, a child on the way when they were they were made it to India, and then they were going to go to Burma. And so they were in India for a little bit. They went to Burma, and on their way to Burma, they actually lost their first child to sickness on the boat. Okay, so put yourself, step into their shoes, year five. Year five. This is where God's calling you, that you're being obedient. You're, this, is what, this is what you know you're supposed to do. And just imagine the, the prayers. Imagine the questions. Imagine the, the, the pleading with God to move in the lives of these people. And it's tough, and I, I can't even fathom what they were going through. But in my own life, I think I've noticed that I'm closest to the Lord when I'm waiting. When I don't understand what he's doing. When I feel like I'm being obedient, and I believe this is where he wants me to go, but things aren't turned out the way I thought they were, and I just feel like I'm just in a holding pattern. I'm waiting, and I, am, I feel like I'm closest to the Lord when I'm waiting. He's at work in my life. And that's what I need to realize. He is working in the waiting. He's moving. He's inviting you to trust him. Because waiting ultimately comes down to trust. 
if you trust, you'll wait. And you can kind of, you can relate that to a lot of other areas of your life. Do I trust God in my finances? Do I trust him with my future spouse? Do I trust, if you trust him, you'll wait because you know what he has, what he has is best. It's when we take our eyes off of him and say, "Uh, I got this, you're taking too long. I can't handle the weight anymore. You know, I'm going to go back. I'm going to move home from Burma. I'm not going to do this anymore. And, you know, it's a, it's a, tough thing to do. And the thing is, you know, we can see when I'm, when I'm reading these stories of Adonai and Judson, I can see the whole picture today. I've read the whole biography. I know what it was like at the end. I know that hundreds of people put their faith in Christ through the work that he did. I know that he translated the entire Bible into their language. I know that he wrote a Bible dictionary that was used by missionaries for generations to come. And right now, there are millions of people that can trace their spiritual roots back to Adoniram Judson. I mean, it's obviously to the Lord, but to the work that he did, the translation work that he did, the Bibles they're using. Were tra- I mean, we, we see the whole picture, but we are in year five. Year five isn't fun. Would you agree? Year, year five is not fun. And today as we dive into 1 Samuel 21, David is going to embark on a journey. So you can go ahead and open to 1 Samuel 21. If you remember from the past few weeks, King Saul has been doing everything in his power to kill David. Right? Last week, it seemed like Saul might be letting up just a little bit. So Jonathan and David decide to create this little plan. They want to really, they want to lure Saul out just to see how angry he is. They use this new moon festival that was coming up, a festival that Israel celebrated. And they want to, really want just Saul to show his hand. David skipped the celebration, said he was going to go home with his family. And Jonathan's job was to kind of prod his father just to find out how angry he really was. At David. And it didn't go well, if you recall. Jonathan actually got a spear thrown at his head by his father, Saul, and it made it pretty clear where he stood, made it pretty clear where David was in the eyes of Saul. So they go back, and remember David was waiting at this rock, Saul was, or um, Jonathan was going to shoot some arrows, and so they go back, they embrace. Jonathan's like, you know, you got to go. My father, my father hates you. And so they say their goodbyes, and David's officially on the run. You ever see that movie, The Fugitive? Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones. It's been many years since I've seen it. But it's a, there's, a, there's a scene in the movie. I don't remember if it's a plane, plane crash, how he gets away, or if it's a train wreck, how he gets away. But Tommy Lee Jones, I think, is this bounty hunter. And he shows up, and he, he's standing there, and he, got all, he has all the local law enforcement around. And he makes this big speech. And he goes, our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground barring injury is four miles an hour, which gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, every residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, and doghouse in the area. And then they all go. They all go to try to find Harrison Ford. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what went down in 1 Samuel 21 when David's on the run, but Saul is letting, there's nothing left undone. All steam ahead, a full steam ahead. Everybody is looking for David. David is an enemy of the state. He'll be living in caves. He'll be living in mountains. He'll hide in forests. At one point, he'll even go over and live in Philistine territory to try to get away from everything that's happening. And sometimes I think we gloss over the fact that if you study the timeline, David's about to go on the run for 10 years. 10 years. Right? This is no longer the little fugitive movie where they get him in three and a half weeks. Ten years. 
Think about your life 10 years ago. Courtney and I just celebrated our nine, last week, we've been married for nine years. A lot has happened in nine years. Imagine 10 years. I wasn't even married 10 years ago. I have three kids now. I mean, we've played, there's been churches, I mean, it's just like my life is totally different. 10 years is a long time. These guys weren't living 900 years either, right? Those days were gone. They're, I mean, they're normal life, normal lifespans, just like us. 10 years, he's on the run. And it's a long time, a long time. And here's the thing, he's already been anointed king. David has been anointed as the next king of Israel. He's proven himself. He's fought Goliath. He's killed Goliath. He's like, I've done everything right. And he goes on the run. He knows he's going to be the next king. Ten years go by. What, I mean, what's going through your mind? What, and we'll see. I, th- I think you'll see over this, over this time frame as we continue through 1 Samuel, his faith challenged tested. I'd even argue it might waver a little at times. But in the midst of waiting, in the midst of the uncertainty, David relies on the Lord. And God provides. He's going to write 22 psalms over this time frame. 22 psalms. 22 of the 150 psalms that you read were written by David when he was hiding in caves, when he was hiding in foreign lands, when he was on hillsides, when he was running. 22 of the psalms. Some of the psalms that you go to in your darkest moments and like, Lord, I just need, I need you. I need encouragement. And you go to the scriptures, you open up psalms, and you're reading David's psalms when he was in this dark moment, when he was waiting for the Lord. Jesus actually quotes two of those psalms while he's hanging on the cross. Like that, it's, it's crazy to see how these psalms just kind of carry over to the New Testament. All right, 1 Samuel 21. Let's jump in. Now, before we jump in, covering two chapters today. It's only about 40 verses. We're going to read huge chunks of scripture. Okay, so just bear with it. It's a story. It's a historical narrative. Just listen to it like it's a story. We'll break it down. Listen to it like it's a story. We'll break it down. All right, 1 Samuel 21.1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us. As always, when I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So here's what's happening. David's on the run, and one of the first places he goes is this priestly town called Nob. There's many different priests there. The families of the priests are there. There's you know, a, lot of, a lot of folks who are there. This is where the tabernacle is. So David probably thought, if you step into David's shoes, I'm on the run. I know Samuel's on my side. I know the priests are on my side. I want to go. I want to be closer to the Lord, closer to these priests. I mean, I, we, we don't really know why, but that's where he ran. He ran to Nob. Okay? Um, now, 
The priest is nervous because he's like, why are you alone? Right? You're the, you're the king's son-in-law. You're Saul's son-in-law. You usually have this royal entourage with you. You're a, you're a military commander. I, I see no men with you. And you're coming up kind of probably unshaven, probably like unkept. And you're coming in, you're looking for bread. Like, I don't understand. And David says, I'm on official business from the king. Now, at best, he's just, let's call it misleading. Some parents might call that a little white lie. Um, at worst, it's just a deliberate lie. I mean, I don't want to speculate. I don't want to jump into his head. But, you know, his, it's one of the first times we see David, I'd call it scheming instead of trusting. You know, again, I'm not going to speculate on his faith, his way or anything like that. But he, he's, not, he's not telling the truth. I mean, the fact of the matter is he's not telling the truth. Now, I'm sure he's fearful. I'm sure he's scared. I'm sure he's questioning. He's waiting. Why am I not king? I've been anointed king. And he probably is going to take matters into his own hands. If I was sitting in his shoes, all right, the Lord's not providing, or I don't think he's providing, here's what I'm going to do. He needs to eat, right? Easy to sympathize with him. Easy to cut him some slack. But here's the thing. You're going to see the consequences of that lie that he just told in the next chapter. And they're not good consequences of that particular lie. All right, so here he goes up to Ahimelech, who's the priest, and says, I need some food. Give me some bread. Now, if you look at the tabernacle, the bread of the present sits in the tabernacle. All right, here's a picture of the tabernacle. I'm not sure if that's exactly what it looked like when David came up, but here's a picture of the tabernacle. Keep in mind this before the temple was built. Solomon's the one that built the temple. All right, but this is the tabernacle, which was kind of call it the, the portable temple, the movable temple. So there's different furniture inside. We're not going to go through all of it, but I got another picture of a little tighter shot of it. So there's what the tabernacle would have looked like. You have the Ark of the Covenant. You have the candlestick there. You have the bread, the showbread over on the back wall. So that's, that's what the priest is going to give him. The priest apparently didn't have any other bread. There's something to be said if the, if the people were bringing their tithes to the priests, they probably would have had extra bread. Okay, but all he's got is the bread of the presence. So what they would do is every week on the Sabbath, the priest would take that bread out off that table and they would replace it with fresh loaves. And Ahimelech is like, okay, I want to make sure your men are clean. I don't, I don't really know if this is, was a requirement for him to do this. But he just said, I want to make sure your men are clean. I want to make sure they haven't been with any women. And David says, yes, we're clean. So he gives him the bread. Now, so David takes this bread out of the tabernacle. Assume he takes it to his men. They eat the bread. Now, when I'm reading this... And I know some of the regulations that surround the temple, the tabernacle, that sort of thing. I, I was expecting, you know, something, the author, to at least expand on this a little. You know, in a couple chapters, you're going to see the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant slips. He reaches out. He puts his hand on it. and He's gone. Like, th there's some pretty heavy regulations around the different aspects. Now, there was never any specific consequences associated with taking the bread. Obviously, the priests would eat the bread. Now, they were priests. That was what it was for. Was after it was sitting in there for a week, the priests would then eat the bread. But I would, I would just be expect there to be a, a little more said, and the author just moves on. Now, interestingly, Jesus refers back to this moment, and it's talked about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he and his disciples are walking through this field on the Sabbath, 
and the disciples are hungry. So if you remember, they're walking through the fields, they're picking grain, picking stuff up, they're kind of rubbing it in their hands, and they're eating. All right, Luke 6. Here's um, the description of the story. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing this, or doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we could preach an entire sermon on this one little passage. We don't have the time to do that. But I think the question is, why does Jesus refer back to this story? He could have said anything. Or the Pharisees are like, why are your disciples doing this? Why are they working for their food on the Sabbath? It's unlawful. They, they could have, he could have done anything, but he refers back to this story of David eating the bread of the presence. And honestly, we're not very clear. I don't like to speculate. I don't like to just make assumptions on why this is done. I think on probably the, the best explanation of why Jesus referred back and why David seemingly was allowed to do it and why Jesus said it was fine for him to do it. Um, you know, a lot of explanations revolve around the fact that he was the anointed one. David was the anointed one of Israel at that time. And he was, you know, he, was, he had divine favor. Now, at the same time, David also was a man. He also sinned. He wasn't Jesus who lived a sinless life. So, you know, you could probably make some arguments either way. I think the other thing is, it's also very interesting to me that in both cases, people were hungry. The disciples were hungry, looking for something to eat. And David, he was hungry, and he was going to the priest and said, I need something to eat. And when, when you get in those situations, and somebody is, I'm not saying he was going to die of starvation, but when you get into those situations, those specific type of situations where human life is at stake, I think human need is always a higher priority than human ritual or tradition. Because if you're not, you can take that a lot of different ways. I don't want you to take it any further than what I just said. There's very specific situations. I'm not a biblical scholar, but this is, as I'm studying this, I'm praying through this. You know, if we're not careful, the letter of the law becomes more important than the spirit of the law. You know, Ahimelech's generosity may have been a deviation may have broken the letter of the law, but it captured the spirit of the law. You know, Jesus talks all over the place about love your brother as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. All right, Leon Morris says, human need must not be subjected to barren legalism. A heart of generosity, if we have a heart of generosity, it means we understand the gospel. A cold obedience to the law does not reveal a warm heart for Jesus. And one of, the, one of the biblical scholars I was studying, he said something. He said, what if you're walking by a house and the house was on fire? And you looked in and you saw somebody laying down on the ground in the house. Do you break in the house and break the law and save them or do you just let them die? 
And they said, nobody would fault you for breaking into the house and actually breaking into the house because you're saving that person. And so I, I say all that just to say, I don't want to speculate too far because the Bible isn't, isn't overly clear about exactly why David was allowed to eat this bread. I don't know. But I, I will say that I think human need always takes priority. Legitimate human need takes priority over some of these rituals that were in place. There was never, like I said, there was never a consequence given in Scripture for somebody eating the bread of the presence. Yes, it was reserved for the priest. Yes, the priest were the one to eat it. But there was never, for the Ark of the Covenant, if you touched it, you knew you were done. There was very clear consequences given. All right, let's keep going. Verse 7. Now a certain man, so we're still in this same, David is still standing in front of Ahimelech. Verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now it seems like when you're reading it straight through, it seems like a completely random statement. Poor guy has a name Doeg, but it seems like a completely random statement, but Doeg is going to come up later in the story. He's an important character in the story. Verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? So he gets his bread and he says, I need a spear or a sword. For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, who you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So gets his bread. Before he leaves, he goes, Ahimelech, I need a sword or I need a spear. You don't know what's going on here. You don't know what I'm going through. I need a sword or a spear. And the priest goes, the only sword we have is the one that you killed Goliath with. It's wrapped up. It's in the back. If you want it, you can have it. David says, give it to me. Verse 8, have you not here a sword or spear at hand? Now, totally sounds like a totally innocent question, does it not? Would you not do the same thing? If you were on the run, would you want a sword or a spear? Yes? No? Yes. Okay, maybe you wouldn't. Um, listen, here's the thing I love about it. It's fascinating if you go back to chapter 17 when David fought Goliath. Wasn't that long ago. Go back to chapter 17, verse 46. So picture this kind of younger, wasn't that younger, but a, a kind of fresh on the scene David. He goes up, he brings his brother's lunch. All of a sudden they're kind of in this battle with this guy, Goliath, this big beast who's been kind of going on, jawing at him for a month now. And he walks in and David walks in. He walks onto the field, looks at Goliath, and here's what he says. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. All right, can you imagine what Goliath is saying? And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. It's very fascinating that when he first came on the scene, He's like, I don't need a sword or a spear. God has got this. He's on the run. Times change. Faith, maybe faith wavers a little bit. Panic sets in. Like, God, what are you doing here? Do I need to take matters into my own hands? He's tired. He's worn down. Verse 9, there is none like that. Give it to me. I need a sword. I need a spear. He's walking by sight. 
I'm not saying I wouldn't want to do the same thing. I'm not saying I wouldn't tempt to do the same thing if I was in his shoes. But he sounded very much different when he was fighting Goliath than he sits right now in front of this priest. And take it even further, now he flees 25 miles. So he leaves the priest in Nob, goes 25 miles over to the Philistine city of Gath, which is the home of Goliath, oddly enough. Verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? I love that. I've got plenty of madmen. Why did you bring this one to me? All right. Shall this fellow come into my house? So David goes to Gath, and they all, you know, they all know who he is. They even said it. These are the Philistines. The Philistines are like, you had songs about this guy. You had songs about you. And he's holding Goliath's sword. Right? It might not mean much, but in those days, your sword was a big deal. I mean, sometimes they had jewels on them. Some, I mean, you wrapped them, you took care of them. It was your livelihood. He is holding Goliath's sword. I don't know how big it was. Goliath was a giant. I'm sure the sword was huge. Everybody knew that was Goliath's sword. And so all of a sudden, panic sets in. David gets a little scared, starts acting like a madman. It says spittle running down his face. And we don't have time to read it, but write in your notes, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 are two psalms that were written during this time. So two of those 22 psalms we talked about were written during... I didn't know that, just because you never really see the context of psalms. You just kind of read them. Um, my son Jaden, the first verse he ever memorized was Psalm 56, 3. And it says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And it's crazy when I think about it now that David's writing that while spittle is running down his face. He's all disheveled. Like, I, you know, you just don't, you don't know the context of some of these. But if you, you know, in your Bible, if you read the Psalms and you look at the little heading above it, it'll say, written by David when he was in a cave, written by David when he was in Gath. And you, you can understand as we're walking through 1 Samuel, you can see a lot of the different context of when these Psalms were written. Verse, or chapter 22. David departed from there, so he leaves, leaves Gath, and he escaped to the cave at Edulam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So he leaves Philistine territory. He goes to this cave at Edulam, or Adulam. And while he was there, his family comes over. I'm sure Saul was after his family at this point. So his family comes over, his family joins. And 400 or so people show up. And here's what it says about those people. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul came. It's a pretty interesting group, am I right? I mean, I don't know who the writer was of this, but this is what he's describing are the people who came and came around David. Right? It's beginning, this is the beginning of David's kingdom on earth, as his kingdom is beginning to take shape. And it might seem like a ridiculous group. Why would you ever in a million years have this group of people around you? But a thousand years later, one of David's descendants is going to have a very similar group around him when he starts his kingdom. 
Fishermen, terrorists, traitors. The first, one of the first things Jesus says when he comes on the scene is he says, the kingdom is for those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. All right? it's a, I mean, this is, this is the group that would have been around Jesus. Those, these are the, this is the group of people who would have launched the early church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he kind of describes the early church in chapter 1. He says, for consider your calling. Now this is us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That last little part is kind of describing what we do might seem foolish to the rest of the world. But God chose what is foolish in the world to change the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. For David, in this time of his life, in this momentary, this moment of heartbreak, God sent him a group of people that were a little different. And if he could have gone out and handpicked the 400 individuals that would have been around him, this is not the people he would have picked. I can assure you. If he could have handpicked, okay, who's going to help me? But God knew exactly what he needed. Right? God brought him the people that he needed. Last weekend we did, if you were here, we did a groundbreaking at the property. And it was, I mean, it was just a really sweet time. And we had, if you remember, we had some chairs set up and I was standing in the back. Jake was talking. I was going to go up front after Jake. And so I'm kind of just standing in the back and Courtney's right next to me. And I just look over at her at one point and she's got tears streaming down her face. And, you know, wives can do this. She knew I was looking at her. And so, you know, she kind of gave me the look. And she probably didn't want me to see how much she was crying. Um, and she, this is what she said. I looked at her. I said, what's wrong? And I'm like, it's a great day. What are you crying? I'm like, what's, what's the problem? And she goes, this is what she said. She goes, this has been a long time coming. This day right here has been a long time coming. And she wasn't talking about the building. She was talking about the ragtag group of people that were out, out in the group that were with us that God is allowing us to do life with. You know, sometimes God calls you to do something. You know, we believed God was calling us four years ago to plant a church. Actually, it was longer than that because I went to seminary before we did it. So six years ago, because Jaden was born while I was in seminary. So six, seven years ago, we felt like God was calling us to plant a church. I'd never worked in a church. I had a full-time, you know, day job. I had no desire really to work in a church. And God's like, you need to plant a church. And I was like, nope. It's kind of like one of those things where like, oh, would I ever do that? And God put some people around me at the time that kind of kept me going. Jake being one of those, Cameron being one of those that said, you know, you really got to start thinking through this, praying through this. And so we did it. And it was, God calls you to do it. So you step out in faith and you you think it's going to be pretty easy. I just thought being a pastor was simple. I mean, you sit in Starbucks all day, you talk to a few people. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm just kidding. But I just, I thought in my mind, I was like, how hard can it be? Right? How hard can it be? You study for a lesson, you, you know, but here's the thing. Friends change. Oddly enough, some people no longer talk to you because they left the church you were at before. Zero sense to me. But some people never talk to you because, oh, you went to a different church? 
I don't understand it. Satan picks you apart in different ways, in different, in different avenues, and God's like, do you trust me? Do you trust me? You know, two years in, Courtney and I used to talk all the time. This is hard. This is, this is tough. People around us, you know, constantly, you know, meeting with people, walking with people through sin, walking with people through struggles, and, you know, people doing that. It's just like, church is messy. And so we're standing there, and I'm standing there with Courtney. She's like, this has been a long time coming. This group right here, I put a picture up here. Sorry. That group of people right there, God put in our lives for a reason. And we, if we had, I'd, I'd wait 10 years for that. I'd wait 20 years. Thank God I only had to wait two. But God knew what he was doing. In those moments, I had no idea what he was doing. Courtney had no idea what he was doing. That's why she's got tears streaming down her face when we're standing here praying and looking at this group of people because that's the church. Church in a building. That building we're going to be in, hopefully it's going to be great. God's going to use it for his glory, but that is not the church. This is the church. The people are the church. And God brought a group of people around us just like he brought people around David. He said, David, you're walking through this time of your life where you've got a long ways to go. And you know, you're going to write all kinds of psalms. You're going to cry out to me and all this stuff's going to happen. But I'm going to put this ragtag group of people around you to encourage you and to love on you. And, you know, that's, that's the start of kind of that group. That priest that's there then will be with David his entire life. The prophet that's next to him, Gad, that we'll read later in the chapter, is with him his entire kingdom. The entire kingship, those two individuals are with him. The whole time. And I just, you know, I... It's just such an amazing thing. I just, I, all I want you to know is I, I thank the Lord that we are allowed to walk with you guys. That we are allowed to do church with a great group of people like you. And I honestly probably wouldn't have handpicked you. I don't know. I don't know who I would have picked. Right? And God says, God, and I look at that, I'm like, wow, I cannot believe. I was on a mission trip, and we've got to keep moving and we're never going to be done. I was on a mission trip to Africa 10 years ago. Three quarters, of, and I didn't even know the people on the trip. I'd only been walking with Jesus like five months. Derwin Anderson kind of tricked everybody and got me on the trip. And then it was like, but 75% of that mission trip team is here. I'm like, wow, Lord. Like, what are you doing? How, how are you assembling this, this group of people? And here's what God does. He brings people together, not for your glory, not for my glory, for his glory. He brings people together because he wants us to unite together and show the world who he is. And my prayer for us is that we could do that. All right, let's keep going. Verse 3. And David, so David leaves, he leaves, um, takes his parents to Moab. He said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad, who we just mentioned, said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So David takes his parents over to Moab. I'm sure, you know, he's a little nervous about what's going to happen. So they were with him. They came to the cave. He 
takes him over to Moab. Moab and Israel didn't really get along too great. But if you remember, David's great-grandmother was Ruth, who was a Moabite. So I'm sure there was some family history there, which was fine. Verse 6, now Saul heard that David was discovered. So the scene leaves. We go back over to Saul now. Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, hear now people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? He's a crazy man. He's looking at his people and saying, everybody out here has conspired against me. Is he going to make you commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds that you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son, doesn't mention his name, makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Too angry to mention either one of their names. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servants against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, here's our boy from earlier, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech and the priest and the son of Ahitub and all the father's house and the priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. So Doeg, who obviously was there at the beginning, is sitting in the presence of Saul. And he says, I saw him. I saw him like giving bread, saw him get the sword. So Saul looks over and goes, go get him. I want all those priests brought right here. Verse 12. And Saul said, here now, son of a high tube. And, and he answered, so he's saying, what do you have to say for yourself? He says, here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, still not saying his name, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who's the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die. And Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David." And they, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hands on to strike the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both men and women, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. Can you imagine? Saul is so crazy at this point. He's so angry at this point. So infuriated that he brings all these priests over and he has them all killed. 85 of them. And then Doeg takes it upon himself to go back to Nob and he kills everybody else who's living there. Men, women, infant, child, ox, donkey, all of them. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said there were 385 people killed in total. If you count both. And the sad irony, I think, of the whole story is 
a few chapters before, God told Saul to go to this Gentile nation who had been kind of a thorn in their side for a long time. And he said, I want you to kill everybody. The Lord tells Saul this. Go kill, you know, every, every single living thing. And you remember Saul brought back animals, right? Oh, I'm going to make these as a sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel comes in the next day and Samuel goes, what is that, what is that bleeding I hear, Saul? I thought you were supposed to kill everything. Like, what, I don't understand why I'm hearing bleeding of animals. And, you know, he comes up with some lame excuse. And now he does the same thing, but he does it to the Lord's people. Destroys them all. All over fear of losing power. Spiraling out of control. And the chapter wraps up, verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me, you shall be in safekeeping. And that's how it wraps up. I love that last verse. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. And it's the, I think the author is painting this, this picture, this contrast between the one hand you have Saul. You have all his selfish pursuits. It's pretty clear that all those who are following him are living in fear. I mean, I would be. He just killed 385 people or had them killed. They're all living in fear. And then on the other hand, you have David, the Lord's anointed. And while he may be waiting, while he may not know where he's headed, he knows who's leading the way. And that's that's a really big difference. And in so often, I think, in our lives, we can be following the wrong king. I mean, if you step back and you look at both of them, Saul looks more inviting. He's got security. got an army. He's got people with him. He's got better qualifications. He's got more fame. If, I wanna, if I'm following, okay, I want to follow this king. Right? It just makes more sense. And that king over there, he just rests on faith. He just trusts this invisible God. Like if I'm, if I'm kind of just standing as an innocent bystander, which, which way am I going to go? But in the end, Saul is not a savior. Saul's a broken savior. Promises everybody, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to do this, this is going to happen in the end. It's an empty promise. It's hollow. And when Abiathar is in trouble, he runs to David. He runs to the Lord's anointed. And what the author is doing, he's giving you this picture of the real king. He's giving you a picture of the Lord's anointed who's to come, King Jesus. If you look at the two lives, Jesus lived a lot like David. He lived away from power. He lived away from nobility, away from wealth. For three years, he had no home. Nowhere to lay his head. He faced prejudice. He faced rejection. No money, no qualifications, no fame. Well, he had fame. No money, no home. Son of a carpenter. And his followers, a bunch of uneducated working class folks. He's arrested, he's beaten, he's executed, he's hung on a cross, buried, rose again three days later. And here's what I'll leave you with. He looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, stay with me, don't be afraid. 
you'll be safe with me. And that safety may not even mean earthly safety, because you could lose your life. But it's everlasting safety with him. It's everlasting peace in his kingdom. The guys are going to come down and we're going to take communion. And as they're getting situated, if you have if you have never placed your faith in Christ, if you've been running to the wrong king your whole life, things you can control, things you can see, things that seem secure, things that seem where the fame is, things that seem easier. You guys can go ahead. And over here, on this side, you have Jesus. The true king. There's a verse in Romans, I think I have it in there. It says, it's Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart... One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. A life walking with Jesus does not mean you won't have problems. Doesn't mean there won't be turmoil. Doesn't mean there won't be harm come your way. But what it does mean is that you have your faith in the only one that can offer true peace. As you get your your juice and you get your bread, I want you to take a few minutes, just bow your head, and I want you just to talk to the Lord. Ask yourself if you've been following the wrong king. Ask yourself if you've been, man, I feel like I'm waiting for you, Lord, and I'm not trusting you while I'm waiting. There's a big difference between being forced to wait and really having no control or being forced to wait and really placing your trust in Him. And I think it's healthy to ask yourselves these questions. And so I want you just to take a few minutes and talk to the Lord.
tells the church at Corinth when they're talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, On the night when he was betrayed, talking about Jesus, it says he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Let's partake. I was flying through Atlanta this week, and I can't fly anywhere in the south, apparently, without going through Atlanta. Um, so I was laying over in Atlanta, and I don't know if you've ever been to the Atlanta airport, but it's the, busy, it's the busiest airport in the world. There's more flights that come out of Atlanta than any other airport. And I'm walking down this long corridor. Of course, Tampa flights are always, for some reason, like A1. Or, I mean, it's always at one extreme of the concourse. So I'm walking all the way down. And as I'm walking, I'm just passing scores and scores and scores of people. I mean, you're just literally in Atlanta. A lot of times you're walking trying to get around people. And so I'm walking down, and I'm just like, I wonder where all these people are going. I wish I was going, you know, I'm going for work. I wish I, you know, I wish I was going somewhere fun. I'm just wondering where, where are all these people going? And then the Lord just put a thought in my head. And it just, it made me wonder, I wonder where all these people are really going. Like at the end of their life. And I started looking at faces. as so I was walking down this corridor. My heart just broke. And I wanted just to like grab people and turn around and say, let's just, let's, Talk to me five minutes. Let me just, and I'm not saying I could convince them of anything. The Lord's the one that does the work. But here's the thing. So many people are chasing the wrong king, right? They're they're following the Saul's of the world, not the David's of the world, not the anointed one, not Jesus. And as a church, I would love nothing more than for you to be disciples of Christ and to take the opportunity, those people who are waiting, those people who are in pain, those people who feel like, like there's no refuge anywhere, I want nothing more than for you to introduce them to the true refuge. The refuge that is Christ. And David writes in one of these Psalms, and I'll close with this, in Psalm 142, I'm going to start in verse 5. But during one of these exiles, this is what he writes. He writes, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I might give thanks to your name. The righteous... This is what I thought of when I was thinking of our church. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for just this passage, Lord. First Samuel's been such an amazing study, as obviously every book is, Lord, but it's just, it's taught me, I know, so much. Lord, and I thank you for that. Thank you for the, the biblical writers that write this. Just thank you for a church that loves to go through it verse by verse and book by book, Lord. And I thank you for a church family who comes around each other. Lord, I'm, I'm so blessed. And I know this church family is as well, Lord. I just pray that we would be a light that we would take the good news of the gospel and we would take it to the ends of the earth. We'd take it next door. We'd take it to our workplaces. Lord, and whatever we do, wherever we go, that we would point people to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.